Hey everybody, I'm Lori Rudiman. Welcome to Corporate Drinker, a punk rock HR production. In each episode, Corporate Drinker explores the intricate ties between work culture and alcohol. Now there's no judgment here. The podcast tells stories of regular people like you and me who may have complicated relationships with drinking. I'll talk to leadership gurus, therapists, addiction specialists, and even HR and marketing professionals who have hot takes on how and why alcohol and work have become so interconnected. And of course, I'll speak to brilliant people with big ideas on cultivating genuine cultures of inclusion and belonging so leaders and employees can enhance their work environment and reduce unnecessary conflict with or without alcohol. In this episode, I'm going straight to the heart of Corporate Drinker and having a conversation with my friend and colleague, Jessica Winder. Jessica is the Senior Vice President of People at Refine Labs. She's also the founder of Hidden Gem Career Coaching, and she's a keynote speaker, an author, and a professional troublemaker. But what I love most about Jess is that she's a vulnerable individual who was more than happy to talk to me about her journey as a corporate drinker. My chat with Jessica reminds me of the old quote that was misattributed to Robin Williams, but goes way back, which is be kind. Everyone you meet is fighting a battle you know nothing about. And in our conversation today, you'll hear Jess talk about her battle with alcohol, but I think you'll also hear another conversation where she was just afraid of her heart breaking. Thankfully, she's on the other side of this and we end the conversation really just in a joyful update. And I'm so pleased to bring you this conversation with someone who's just willing to put it out on the table for you to hear. So if you're interested in all of this, I invite you to sit back and enjoy this conversation with Jessica Winder. Hey, Jessica, welcome to the podcast. So excited to be here. Well, I'm pleased to have you here as well. You know, normally I would invite you on and we would get all nerdy about human resources and we, you know, we can, we can do that. But before we get started, why don't you tell everybody just very quickly about your day job? What do you do? Yeah. So my day job, I'm a senior vice president of people at a small marketing agency. And then I have my own business doing career coaching. And then I just wrote a book. So I'm doing everything. <laughs> you are. You are multi-talented. I love it. It's amazing. You know, I've been watching your career flourish on LinkedIn and Instagram. There's so much good stuff in your life. But like any, you know, origin story, there's always like a little bit of challenge, a little bit of darkness. And you once described yourself as a hard drinking HR lady. So can you tell me about that? Yeah. So, and it's so funny because I still like something in me still cringes to say that I'm an alcoholic, but for all intents and purposes, that's how I would identify myself as someone who had an issue with substance abuse and that substance happened to be alcohol. And so I've been very transparent on LinkedIn and all of my social media about talking about it and just self-identifying and saying, I'm sober now. I've been sober for three years. And this is kind of why, and this is what I went through. Um, but at the time, at the height of my addiction, I was a HR executive and I was going to work like nothing happened and no one, there were definitely people who saw it and they, they talked to me about it in private, but it was also, I was HR. So who were you actually going to tell? So that right. was also another factor. <laughs> Interesting. You know, your story sets at the intersection of being a woman, a woman of color, being an executive, you know, there's, there's all sorts of ways to go, but you did touch upon some of the darkness. So when you were 
drinking and working, did you, did you bring substance abuse issues into your adulthood? Did it emerge earlier? Like what's the trajectory here? Yeah. So I would definitely say if I really look at my family tree, addiction is in my family twofold. It's everywhere. We didn't talk about it. It was something that we never acknowledged to this day. We would never acknowledge it, Um, but it was real. And it was something that until I was uh, in recovery, I never would have acknowledged that my family had addiction issues. So it, it was a manifestation of things that would go on. And I would go through these periods where I would say, nothing's wrong with me. And I'm going to show you, and I'm going to get sober for a little while. And I would, I would get sober for 30, 60, 90 days. And on that day that I said I was done, I I was going to drink like I've never drank before, but it was to prove, you know, like there's nothing wrong with me. Look at me. I'm fine. And part of the reason I felt like my addiction, I was in my addiction for so long is that the one thing I had was my career. So when someone would say, just hey, you need to stop or you need to slow down or my parents would try to talk to me, I'd say, look at my career. Look at what I've done. You can't tell me anything. You have no control over me. I was making money. I was traveling. And so it was my one facet. My job was everything to me because I had nothing else. And it was the one thing I was holding on to for dear life. That really resonates with me because, you know, I wrote a book previously and my thesis of that is, you know, we fix work for ourselves and for other people by fixing ourselves first. And also that um, if you over index on work, it's because you're weird and you've got other stuff going on. So I hear these (laughs) themes like in your story, you know, I just wonder if there was some point in your, in your life in, in college days and early career where maybe you weren't drinking as hard. And I, and I'm not, it's not a chicken and an egg question. I mean, we all bring our family trauma or, you know, origin stories to the table, but there's also this element of work that, really causes a lot of people to just adopt maladaptive coping techniques. So what was the role of work in that for you, even though your career was great? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So it absolutely work was a part of it. So I have to say, I started my career as HR in oil and gas. And this was when I lived in Houston, Texas. And I will just say the culture was absolutely a drinking culture. We had a cart that would come around on Fridays and they would make a drink for you. This was 13 years ago when I started my career, but it was absolutely a part of the culture. And if you were not participating, you were looked at as odd or you weren't a part of the culture or you weren't going to happy hours. And at the time I was a recruiter. So I was actively involved in trying to recruit people to come work for this oil and gas company. And so that was a moment where I, I intertwined alcohol in work because I thought, oh, this is what I need to be successful. And it, it fed into this narrative that I already had. Well, you know, I'm fascinated by that because you may, some may say you already have a double bind being a woman in oil and gas or being a person of color in oil and gas, right? So I would imagine that there were a lot of things you probably did to feel like part of the team and alcohol was just one of them. Do Absolutely. Is that a fair statement? Absolutely. It was just one of the many things that I did to, in so many words, assimilate. I wanted to be a part of the group. I wanted to feel like I belonged. And part of that belonging was to drink. All right. So you're in oil and gas, but that's not where you are today. So you've had other jobs since then and you were actively drinking, right? You were actively taking part in your addiction. So tell me a little bit about that. 
Yeah. So uh, the thing about addiction is that you take it with you. So I would start a new job and say, I'm going to be different in this job. I'm gonna, I'm not going to be drinking. I'm not going out to happy hour. I'm not going to embarrass myself because there were so many situations where I went places and it got out of hand and I would embarrass myself and I would be so mortified the next day of what have I done? What did I say to someone? And again, I'm still HR. So people still have this facade of like, I'm supposed to be this one type of person. And then they go out with me and they're like, whoa, she's a party girl. She's throwing back shots. And so it would change people's perception of me. And so there were so many times that I moved. The biggest move was I moved from Houston to Chicago. And when I got there, I literally told myself, I'm not going to be that person anymore. But the thing about addiction is you take yourself with you and you can only do that for so long. So it wasn't long before I was back in my old habits of the happy hours. Uh, By this time, I had started to drink before I went to work. So it, it was no longer a I drink after work. It was I drink when I wake up. I drink before I go to sleep. It was all the time, but I was still going through these phases of I'm going to quit. So I would quit for a little while and then I'd go back stronger than ever. And then I would quit for a longer. And so in my mind, I was fine. Like nobody could tell me anything differently, but yeah, it, it kept morphing and it kept every time I went back out, as they say, I got worse and worse and worse. You know, there are a lot of people who are actively drinking who um, will negotiate with alcohol. They'll say, well, I'll only have beer or I'll only have, you know, vodka or I'll only have, you know, like a champagne for breakfast, right? Were you that type of drinker or did you have one drink? Oh, no. So I was so pretentious when it came to wine. I was like, I'm a wine drinker. You can't tell me anything. I know all these things about wine. I literally made it into a part of my identity. Like when I would go out with people, I would take pride and giving them wine recommendations and you should drink it in this. Oh, it was all crap. (laughs) Well, that's, you know, wine is really fascinating because that is one way to show that you're, um, you've risen up in the ranks of social statuses, right? And it's also a way to lord a little bit of power over the peasants who don't know anything about wine. So I can see that being a mechanism of power and also a mechanism to overcome some insecurities. I don't know. Is that fair? Absolutely. It was, it was a way, um, growing, I grew up in a small town in East Texas. My family wasn't drinking wine. So it was like a way for me to show that I've made it, you know, and I'm drinking this expensive wine and I'm doing all these things. Now, mind you, I would drink wine when I was out and then I'd go home and, you know, drink vodka, but nobody knew that part. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so you were, you were, um, totally open to your types of alcohol. Yes. Yeah. I hear you. Yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So you end up, you know, uh, you're not in that current job that you were in, in Chicago. So what's the next part of your journey? Did you wait, did you ever leave any of these jobs because they said, Hey, Jess, it's time to go. No, never. They never. In fact, there was a point in my career and this is like one of those pivotal moments that I will never forget. And it was, I ended up getting a DUI, which to this day, I feel like I'm living, I'm doing a living amends because I put so many people in danger, but I did. I got a DUI Labor Day weekend on Friday. I went back to work on Tuesday and got a promotion. No one knew what was going on. And the next, so my parents had to come get me out of jail. So my parents are the only two people that knew what had happened because they had to come get me out of jail. And the next week I called my mom and I said, guess what? I got a promotion and she cried and she said, Jessica, I think you're going to die because you don't see the consequences. She was like, you're not seeing the true consequences of your actions. Like, obviously 
you know, money makes things go away. And so I was able to get that DUI expunged. I paid a lot of money to an expensive lawyer and it's like, it never happened. And she was petrified for me, but that was such a pivotal moment because that was the first time she told me she thought I was going to die from my addiction because I was not getting better. I was just getting worse and I was getting better able to hide it. So at every job, what I would do is I would, I was type A overachiever. So I would be drinking and having a great time, but I was killing it at work. I was doing amazing things. I was working crazy hours because I wanted, because work was all I had. So it was nothing for me to be working 12 hours a day, getting projects done, and I was getting rewarded for it. Sure, sure. That makes sense to me. You know, you said something really interesting that money makes things go away, but you didn't say money fixes problems. And I think I um, <laughs> I have learned that lesson in my own life. You know, I think money does fix some things, but more and more I see how money just makes things go away for people who are in positions of power or who have some privilege. And in your case, you did. I mean, you had this wonderful career that was thriving. You had access to capital and you made some stuff go away. What would happen to a regular employee who got a DUI? I mean, work would hear about it, wouldn't they? Yes, they would absolutely have heard about it. It would have come up um, at the company that I was at. We did randomly like check people's backgrounds. And so I thought to myself like, oh my God, what if my number gets pulled? Now, mind you, this was at a huge organization that had thousands of employees. So I was just chancing it that they would never find out and they didn't. And I never acknowledged it to them. I never said a word. I I was on probation for a year. No clue. I'm like literally go, going to work, giving presentations and amazing. And then going to pee in a cup with my probation officer. <laughs> oh my goodness. Wow. I mean, a tale of two cities right there. But I think that's so many people's stories. And you can only maintain separate lives for so long before things, they have to change. And so you mentioned that about three years ago, you started your journey in recovery. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So that was right after the DUI, this attorney that I talked to, he was, he told me, he said, you know, do you think that you might have a problem? And at the time I was so ashamed of what I had done that he, it was like a glimpse of light through the hole that I was like, you know what, maybe, maybe I do. And he said, well, maybe you should try to go to some meeting and you need to, you know, you need to talk to some people that are, have been in your place who have recovered in that can get you where you need to be. And so I started going to meetings. Now, mind you, when I went to these meetings, I would look around and I'd be like, oh, these people, no one in this room is like me. You know, For sure. I was going to ask about that. I mean, you know, women who talk about doing the 12 steps really bristle at first because oftentimes it's like crusty old men or, you know, people who have really hit the wall with addiction, right? And especially corporate women don't feel uh, camaraderie in the room. They don't feel like they have any allies. And again, not to state the obvious, but it's, you know, mostly white in many of those rooms. And so what were those early meetings like for you? They were hard, I would say, because I was the only person that looked like me in the room. So I would show up and I would be the only black woman there. And I would look around the room and it fed into this narrative of there's nothing wrong with me. Like, oh no, like I made a mistake. Like by this time, you know, in the beginning of the DUI was so shameful. And what have I done? I've ruined my life. And then as time passed, it morphed into, I made a mistake. I just made a mistake, a simple mistake. At this time though, I was still 100% trying to get sober. So I'd stopped drinking. So there was a time period there for about three months where I was like, and that was my, that was my go-to. I could do it for three months. I could do this. Like, I'm going to give it up. I'm going to go to meetings, but I would go to these meetings and I would have no one that I identified with. 
until I found a meeting that was online that was specifically for Black people. And so I was like, oh. And so I went to this meeting and I was like, oh, they're telling my story. They were talking about their families and things that had happened and past traumas that spoke to some of the the truths that I had been through as well. And that was the start of me being like, okay, there is a problem. And maybe if I admit that I have a problem, I could change something. Now, it took me a lot of time to start self-identifying and actually being really open about it. There was so much shame there. But the reason I started to tell people is because I thought I would turn back. So I thought if no one knew I can get out of this, I can change my mind and say there's nothing wrong with me. You know what I mean? And so once I started telling people, it was also a safety net for me to say, I can't turn around now. So I, I'm too far into this. I talk about it too much that if I turned around now, people would know and they would ask me about it. Interesting. You know, as you were talking about your AA experience and going to meetings, I was just thinking that corporations pump millions of dollars into well-being programs and initiatives. And the thing that saved you and maybe continues to save you on a regular basis are these community meetings that are facilitated by technology, but don't have anything to do with work, right? They're things that you're doing on your own. So I just wonder if you have any thoughts on the role and responsibility of corporations. You know, we talked about culture earlier in this conversation, but we also talked about historic trauma that your family has experienced. So what's the role in a company to even address that and fix that? Yeah. So when I started getting very serious about my sobriety, where I had declared like, this is my sobriety date, I'm going to do this. I actually sat down at the time I was head of HR for a company and I reported directly to the CEO and he and I had a really great relationship and I decided to tell him. And I wanted to tell him because at the time my schedule was, I was going to a 7am meeting. I would go to work. I would go to a 12 o'clock meeting. I would go back to work and then I would go to another meeting. And that was that is what was keeping me sober was that my day was so structured that by the end of the day, I would just pass out and go to sleep and then start again. There was no forms to it. And I told him this because I was like, I, I need my day to be this, this structured and I don't know how long it's going to last. And it ended up lasting for like almost a year, my first year. And I said, you know, when we have company events, I'm, I'm not coming. I can't come because there will be alcohol there. And I want you to understand why as the head of people and, I'm, and my team's planning these events that I won't be there. And he was so supportive. But I have to say, we had a foundational relationship. I would never have told him if I didn't feel like I could trust him. And he actually, ironically, ended up writing a letter to the judge for my DUI case. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, good, again, to have the network and to have the power. I love that. And I love that comment that you made about having a foundation of trust. You know, so many people say to me that if you create that foundation, your organization is not going to over-index on alcohol at parties. It may be there, but it may not be the center of the party, the center of the celebration. You can have alcohol and trust that people are going to be there or not be there, but it's going to be a responsible endeavor. I don't know. What do you, what do you think about all that? I do think that that's true now. So in the beginning of my sobriety, I decided I just could not go to any of these events if there were going to be alcohol. I just made a line in the sand. I can't do it. Now, three years in, it doesn't bother me at all. I can go. I um, index towards like having, making sure they have mocktails. And so they have options and like, you know, all of those things. But as long as it's not like we're just going to go to the bar, like if it's an activity, but then there's drinking involved, that part is where I think we could be more inclusive. Because a lot of times it's just, we're going to meet at this bar across the street, everybody come over and it's 
it's centered around alcohol rather than like, let's go do a volunteer day. And then afterwards, people are going to go have a drink. That's fine. You know, then that way you can participate in the parts that you want to. But part of me being so open, I've had so many employees come to me and tell me that they are in recovery that would have never known that they will, they choose not to tell anyone at work. And that's their prerogative. That's their business. But they feel like they can tell me because I'm so open about it. But we have these events and now they'll say, thank you so much that there was an option for me because before they would just go and kind of try to fake it which I used to do at the beginning too. I would get there early and order something that made it look like I was drinking and I wasn't. Yeah. You know, I'm, uh, I've, I've heard this strategy before and I'm just struck by how in 2023, there's still a penalty and a tax on people who do not want to drink. Either they have to white knuckle it through this event or they have to fake it with a, you know, a seltzer water that looks like a vodka tonic, right? Or they don't go and then they don't form relationships. And I think that's the thing I'm hearing over and over again. Like, it's not that I don't drink, Lori, or I do drink. I just don't want to go to these events. I don't want to socialize with my colleagues in that way. And I feel like I don't have the same opportunities. I I would imagine that resonates with you. And I just wonder if you could send a message to younger HR professionals who have a position of power to structure some of these events. What's your advice to them? Yes, absolutely. So to your point, those three things are the only way that that's the strategy. I, at my second year, when I could go to these events, I would absolutely get there early. And like, I would ask the bartender and I would tell them like, Hey, I'm sober. These people don't know that I'm going to come to you every time. And can you make me a drink? And we're not going to acknowledge that it doesn't have alcohol in it. And it worked every single time. And I even had bartenders be like, kudos to you, like good on you. I don't know what you're doing, but kudos to you. But the fact that I had to do that was a problem. And it felt, and once then, once people found out that I was sober, they'd be like, Oh, but I saw you. And I'm like, but it, it was cranberry and Sprite, you know? Right. <laughs> I, I also wonder if there's a role for HR professionals to just try or, or managers really. I mean, this is a manager responsibility to train people you don't ask why someone's not drinking or you don't, this is not a topic of conversation that's appropriate. Adults don't talk about this at work, but we don't do that. We train for all kinds of stupid stuff, but we don't train for that. (laughs) Yes. Training to not ask people those types of questions is very interesting because this was three years ago, but whenever I would tell people I stopped drinking, the first thing was I'm pregnant. And I'd say, well, I mean, the thing about a baby is you're going to eventually find out. But at the time I was not. Yeah. Um, But that's like people's go-to, like what's wrong or why don't you drink? Or I've had someone, and this happened maybe a year ago, and when I said, I don't drink, she said, oh, are you an alcoholic? Oh, And I was stunned. I was stunned. I was absolutely stunned. And I think I just said no, because at the time I, and then afterwards I was like, why didn't I say yes and come here and none of it? Yeah. And why were you put in that position in the first place? That's absolutely terrible. So, oh my goodness. Well, you know, today your story three years later is different. So I wonder if you'll share with us what has happened since you went to those AA meetings. Yeah. So I love saying this, but everything that is good in my life right now is because I stopped drinking every single thing that is good. And it's, it's everything to me right now. I don't go to as many meetings as I used to. I'm not doing three a day anymore, but I still go. Um, I still believe in sponsorship and like being with a community of people that understand what you have gone through. 
and whatever that means to you. So whatever you self-identify as, there's a meeting for you. You can find a meeting. Um, but yeah, my life is completely different. I've gotten married. I've relocated. I'm pregnant with twins. And it's so amazing to me that my husband has met, he's never met, he's never even met or seen that side of me, which I think is such a beautiful thing because when I was drinking, I was also, um, I would use the word vicious, just like mean spirited. And that part is just not a part of our relationship. And I pride myself on that. And we talk about my struggles with addiction and all of that. It's very open and clear in our relationship. And I, I don't want him or these kids that I'm carrying right now to ever know that side of me, to ever know me as someone that was a drinker. But yes, everything good in my life is because I stopped drinking. Wow. What an amazing story. And so generous of you to come and share that with us. You know, you've also professionally just flourished over these past couple of years. So tell us a little bit about some of the work that you're doing right now. Yeah. So once I got sober, I used to think I'm like, I'm a great employee because I work all these hours. Not because I, you know, and now I feel like I'm a great employee because I'm making an impact. You know what I mean? I'm not working all the hours that I used to. I have boundaries, which is new to me to have boundaries in the place of work. I know that uh, I've read your book. So I know you talk about like your work is not your worth. And for me, it was, but it was because that's all that I had. So now I'm in a very different place in an executive position where I feel like I can actually make a difference. I'm the one who's writing the policies. I found my niche in that I want to be in a startup space. So I want to be the first or the first of a few HR people that have been in a company and build it from the ground up. I'm a builder and I've honed in on that skill in my sobriety is that I am a builder. I want to come in, I want to build it, and then I want to move on. My ultimate goal is I want to work for like a VC firm where I can come in and tell people you're doing this wrong or fix it and then leave. I love that. I Believe me, that's a really great job to have. I love telling people <laughs> you've got it all wrong. Here's the plan. Good luck. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's what well, I mean. <laughs> well, the other thing besides being a builder and an entrepreneur is that you're an author. So tell us a little bit about that. I mean, one of the things about you know substance abuse disorders is that it really fogs up your brain and kills your creativity. So you can't write a book. You can't, you know, write that great poem, that great novel that you're thinking about. You can't even like run an effective garage sale when you're drinking, right? So your brain is on fire right now in a positive way. So tell us about that. Absolutely. So ironically, right after I got married, I told my husband, like, I think I want to write a career focused journal. And we, we laughed about it. Like he and I were like, Oh, that's so funny. And then the next day I like pulled up Google doc and I was like, I'm just going to try. Let's just see what happens. And I wrote it out, like got an editor, did the whole thing. And I love to journal ever since I've gotten sober, I've been into like yoga and meditation. And, you know, I've gotten more granola. Um, <laughs> right. uh, one of my friends in Tabati is like, you're the, you're the quintessential granola alcohol, like recovering alcoholic. And I was like, I, thank you. Poster hey, your child. skin looks uh, great. You're happy. You know, all of the good <laughs> stuff. <laughs> like I'll take it. But yes, the book was based on the foundation of like, I wanted to help people journal out. What do you want and actually want in your career? Because when I do career coaching, so many people give me the feedback of like, well, I'm only doing this because I need to pay my bills. And there is nothing wrong with that. People, you need to pay your bills, you need a job. But do you want to like what you're doing? I'm not saying these people have to be your family. I'm not saying you have to love them. I don't believe in any of that. But I do believe you can like your career and you can move towards something. So the journal is very focused on prompts to get you to think about what are you doing right now and what do you want to do in the future? 
Well, we will make sure to link to all of your good stuff in the show notes. And listen, you are welcome to come on any podcast I do at any time, even if we are just talking about garage sales. Like you're, <laughs> I love it. Let's yeah, do it. <laughs> like, like I'm just so pleased that you joined us today. And thanks again for sharing your story. Thank you so much. I love this.